Good morning. Today we get a window into the Holy Family where baby Jesus was born. And today's sermon text is the one childhood story when he was 12 years old. And since there's only one story, if you spend any time at all studying the life of Jesus, you're somewhat familiar with it. But we printed it out for you, and I'm going to read it in a few minutes. But I want to start with this question. Have you ever thought about what would it be like to have Jesus as your son? <laughs> really, I mean. First of all, I think that I'd be looking over my shoulder a little bit because it's not like babysitting the pastor's kid. It's raising God's child for God. And you'd be thinking, your parents know this awesome feeling about having the trust of children in your family, but you'd be thinking, this is God's only begotten son entrusted to us as a couple. Also, have you noticed how your children, when they're younger, often can have a great grasp on situations that because of our adult complexities, we've kind of lost sight of the basics? And so there might be a problem in the family or something we're stressing about, and they'll just come up with this beautiful testimony of what it would be like if we just trusted God in this situation. So imagine having Jesus talking to you after a family reunion where there was a big buhara and and just giving his take on it as he's growing up. The, The one story we have demonstrates to us a lot of things. In a small way, it demonstrates to us that Even having God's only begotten perfect son in your family, you still would not have perfect times. You'd still have complexities, and it wouldn't, uh, they weren't always on the same page. The mystery of the Christ is that he actually grew internally and spiritually in wisdom and in stature, that coming to earth, he gave up the majesty of his omnipotence. His omnipresence, his omniscience, knowing everything, being everywhere, being all-powerful. And he grew as a normal human being that wasn't normal because he's God. And we see a window into this. And yet, what we're going to do as God's followers, as the Jesus people, is we're going to look at this story like we're supposed to and find some insights about Jesus for us right now from the story of how he behaved and what he was like when he was 12 in his family. So with that, uh, let me read the story real quickly. We saw it acted out on film, but uh, Luke wrote it, and he tells some background that the film doesn't necessarily tell us. So you ready? It's on page 8 of your folder. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom When it says they went up to Jerusalem, they actually lived up in Galilee, 75 miles to the north. But the Jewish mind, when you see it in Jewish scripture like this, everything is up to Jerusalem where God's temple was. We just can't fathom, because we we didn't grow up as Jewish people, the place that the temple has in the heart and minds and was intended to have by God's design in the heart and minds of all Jews. And still today, it's that way for the Jewish community because they don't have the Christ. And so the temple is really the presence of God to them, and that's why it's such a tragedy to them that there's a mosque there, which really, I'm just going to say it, for a Christian, we shouldn't be too grieved because God said it would be destroyed because the temple is the church. 
But for them, it was a place that you had to go and you, were, you could be, God said, I'm closest to you there. And the teachings of their, of their word of God for their nation happened mostly there, although there are these synagogues, these little churches out uh, populated th- th- for all over. They went to the temple by prescription three times a year for sure. You could go more often but three times a year, and and not everyone could make it all the time, and often only the head of the family would go for the family, especially poor families like Jesus' family. And so for for this to say Jesus and Mary went, that was already showing you a little bit a window into their devoutness as a couple. They were able to and could and made arrangements so they could both go. And then when it says they took Jesus with them and he's 12 years old, that would fit the way a Jew would read this, that would fit that mindset because even already at this time of Jesus' time, the custom of bar mitzvah was, was, maybe it wasn't called that right then, but it was started that you'd come of age when you were 13. And so at 12, you would take the boy and start exposing him to his and modeling for him his pattern and let him be taught and let him go to the temple with you and so the man of the house or the couple would take them along. Jesus had little brothers, maybe even a little sister or two. It doesn't say anything about them going. That We don't know what happened, but maybe they were with relatives back home in Nazareth. We don't know. So with that background, let me keep reading. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, and it's a seven-day festival, the boys stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Um, you have stories in your family about everybody piling into a car and one's missing, and you count, you get down the road a little ways and you count heads, and there's, there, where's this one? Well, there's no car to pile into. And it's, they're not, there's not news every day about abducted children that you could watch from all over the planet. And they were relatively safe, and there was a whole lot of relatives around. And, it, and it's very common that they would not worry about it. And after all, their son is Jesus, who has never been absent-minded or mischievous or lost or wandering around to chase a butterfly while the family was leaving to go back home from their festival vacation. So it's really common that they would look for him. Verse 45, when they, I'm sorry, let's do 44. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives because it's nightfall and you're camping along the way home. And they were looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, now Luke, Luke just summarizes, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. How long have they been walking though? A whole day. And did they do it all at night, or did they get up early, early, early the next morning? They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. So a day out, a day back, and a day looking for him around Jerusalem. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers. That means that one day searching, the third day he's outside of their presence. They found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers. Listening. To them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Have you ever lost a child for a few hours and you're looking for them or 30 minutes? How you parents, how terrified you can be? I don't think their first thought, judging by everything that's written here, was how amazed they were at his teaching. <laughs> they, uh, we have four boys. When we were at a, Mary and I lived at a camp for one summer while I was in school to be a pastor. It's called Camp Croy. It's up in Wisconsin. And there's a 300-acre lake, and it's a beautiful setting. And we were the host couple, and I was the vicar there so I could lead devotions when families came and so we would, different families would come for three or four days camping and leave, and others would come. And so we lived there. It was a beautiful setting. We've been back for vacation. Donovan, our oldest, was three, and our next one was born, and he was 18 months. And uh, while there was this Hartwig family there, which happens to be Pastor Lightning's family, and so he was there as a five-year-old, while they were there on this huge family vacation, we lost Donovan. We couldn't find him. And of just a couple weeks earlier, another family that had been in the boundary waters of Canada and lost a six-year-old who drowned and had told us their whole story. They had lost him like a year earlier, but they had been at our camp. They had just told us that whole story. And now we're living by this 300-acre lake. And we can't find our son Donovan. And I thought he was with Mary, and she thought he was with me. And now, frantically, running around every... There's like 24 little wooden cabins that all are unlocked and have a screen door. So you're running and opening the doors, you know. So I said, Mary, run to the cabins. And I ran down. Remember the story of the drowned child in the Boundary Waters is haunting me. And I ran down and stood on the pier... And just looked into the water and cried and said, God, please no. Please no. Did he come down here into the water? And it was about 45 minutes that seemed like an eternity. And there's a lodge there. And came up this pathway in the back way from the water to the lodge. Went in the back door. And there is our Donovan watching Pastor Lightning's brother practice the violin who's Jeremy, a pastor up in Salina, Kansas now. You, uh, you that have lost children before know that you want to grab them, hug them, and love on them, and you also want to say, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you you're just so, you're so frantically upset about what happened. Well, that, that was Mary and Joseph. Humans, dedicated, devout, believers, who were lost in their thoughts of having lost their child and God's child. And he's not three, he's 12. And so he's got, he's got some responsibility here and some accountability. And she knows and Joseph knows that he knows better. But he's not a sinner, is he? He really does know better than they do what's going on. But they just want to tell him he knows better than to do this to them. So here's what she says. Verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, 
Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. This is a family member crying foul. You, you, you're, you're doing great impressing everybody as the God of the planet, but you fouled us because we've been frantically looking for you for three days, starting with the end of the first day. They were lost in their thoughts. Jesus' answer really says it all. And this is the point for our soul today that we need to take home because we're not with Jesus, our 12-year-old son. We're with Jesus, the Savior and the Lord of our hearts. Jesus says to them, Why were you searching for me? In that first statement, that question, Jesus tells mom, Remember who I am. You can't look for Jesus like he's lost, ever, even if he's 12. You don't need to be anxiously searching for me. Think about the story. We got to see it on film. You're a couple that had a virgin birth. You had an angel meet, greet both of you and say, this is God's child. You have been told he is the Savior of and will save his people from their sins. Mary had sang a song like that, appreciating and believing that to Elizabeth when she went to visit with, with her and stay with her when she was six months along in her pregnancy. You have been around him for 12 years. He is God's own son. If he didn't tell you he was staying back, and it's that time of rite of passage, then something bigger than you is going on. To watch Mary later at the wedding at Cana, she's still struggling with this, and so would we. And that's why we're preaching this today for us. We still struggle with it, and he's the Lord of Lords. She comes to him at the the banquet at the wedding, and she says, they have no more wine. Because every single human being is stuck in our own agenda, our own experience. When we fell into sin at the tree with our parents, Adam and Eve, we all want to be God of our own life and measure everything, believe ourselves more than anybody else, have our mission for our life, the meaning of our life. We're all struggling to do that in a darkness of a fallen state. And Mary at the the wedding at Canaan says, I want you to make wine for them. That's what she was saying. And remember, Jesus said to her, what does your agenda really have to do with mine? Right? Well, here's 12 years old. It's the same thing. Why are you searching for me? Do you remember who I am? And here's how I want to apply that to us. Our lives all are lived under the sun, that's Ecclesiastes, and under the cloud of violence and trouble and sickness and sorrow and fear and and the fact that they're finite and they're limited and they're small. All of our lives are lived that way. And we go through periods where we feel like we've got it all figured out and it's in control and we found a peace and contentment and happiness. But then it's like losing your child on a vacation that was happy and then suddenly it's gone. Suddenly we're frightened by our illness or our car wreck or our problems in our family or a new dynamic in relationships we have no control over. And we start praying like Mary searching for Jesus. We start 
Where are you? And why are you doing this to me? And getting lost in our thoughts as we try to figure it out and think it through and make it work and be God of our circumstances because it was working great until these new hiccups happened. And our prayers are tainted with that us-centeredness. And we come to him and he says, Why are you so frantically praying to me? Why are you searching for me? Why are you acting as if I'm not keeping my promise? Now, the 12-year-old Jesus was fulfilling the Lord, the Father's will to save us. But he's already done with all that, isn't he? And Jesus said, as he ascended into heaven, he said, I will be what? I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And he is the one that said through his apostles, I will work everything out for your good. And he's the one that said through an apostle, I work everything according to the counsel of my will. And I'm guiding over all things for the good of the church. And I will be there for you. Don't be searching for me like I'm not there just because you can't. See me. And Peter often, you know Peter that the, the followed Jesus, he often walked by sight while he had Jesus with him. And so you got Jesus in the boat sleeping in the storm or Jesus walking on water. And Peter wanted everything to happen in his experience by sight. And then he wrote later, when Peter's about to die, Jesus has already ascended. Your faith, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, your faith is precious because you cannot see him and yet you believe in him. So the question I have is, are you searching for Jesus as you face your present problems like you can't find him? You don't need to be searching for him like you can't find him. He has given you in this house, this place, Three or four passages, and there are thousands more that he speaks to your soul, and he is found in his word and his promises, and he is not going to leave your side. And he is the same Jesus that they were looking for. Remember who he is. He's the one human being that can relate to every human struggle because he's still a human, and he's God at the same time. And having not seen him, you still believe in him. And so this is a test of your faith in who he is. Just like it was a test for Mary and Joseph in the faith of who that son was. That they'd be put in that situation where he didn't tell them he was going to stay back. And God's not telling you a whole bunch either. And he doesn't have to. He just wants you to trust him. The second thing is he wants you to trust his mission, and that's in the second part of his answer. Why were you searching for me? He didn't wait for an answer. He knew the answer. He was teaching them, right? He said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know that as the Christ, I am on my mission, not yours? He's come of age, hasn't he? And he had to tell her again at the wedding, the way I told you. I'm on a mission. And what was his mission? What did the angel say to Joseph to make him marry his virgin fiance? He will save his people from their sins. 
The meaning of the life of Christ is and always will be the salvation of your soul and your body forever. It is the big thing, it is your biggest problem that you are a sinner who is otherwise lost and going to die and be forever separated from God. And he fixed that. And in his lifetime at 12, he is, he is growing into that and he's living on that mission and he's perfect at it. And it's a struggle and it makes him at odds even with his own parents. Because every fallen human being still has, even if it's rather innocuous, their own little agenda, their own little mission, their own understanding of the way things should be. And he said, I was in my father's house. Notice the contrast. Your father and I were searching for you anxiously. My father wasn't searching for me. I was in his house. Very carefully chosen words by our Savior. The reason I'm sharing that with you is... I cannot help you or myself with telling you the reasons why the problems that you face and the challenges and the solutions that sometimes come temporarily, I cannot tell you why God writes your story the way he writes it. Nobody can. You will knock your, your, your head silly trying to figure it all out. If you try to figure it out apart from the mission that God is on to save your soul. It is infinitesimally enough that that everything that happens in your life has to do with the salvation of your soul. You don't need more meaning. Like it's about the next job you're going to get. Or how you're going to be happier over here at this place or that. Or you're going to be healthier. Or you'd get. It doesn't need to have all that meaning. This is the, this is the hard pill for the sinner in you to swallow. But, the, but the, the new man, the person of faith, loves to grasp onto this pure truth. Jesus is always about his father's business of saving your soul. And just allow me a couple of verses to show you. Now that he's not 12, now that he's finished saving the planet... Now that he sent out the apostles to be the great missionaries, listen to them as they preached about him. The apostle Paul is standing in Athens, and he is, he is preaching the Christ to people who ne- a lot of them are not Jews, so they've never heard the prophecies. And this is what he said. God set the exact time and place that you would be born and all the stresses in your life that you would have so that you would start to grope for him and perhaps find him. And this is Paul. I'm summarizing this sermon in Acts 17. That's where you can find it. He says, God wants you to grope for him. And in groping for him, he'll be found in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, who will judge you on the last day. And so you want to look at all of your problems and the way that God puts you in this place in life. And the fact that I, Paul, came in as a preacher, that this is your moment to hear that the solution is your salvation. Not How it's all going to be played out in your lifetime, those are little things. They seem so big to you because you're in your own agenda. But the big thing is God has saved you. And you're a sinner who's redeemed. And a whole bunch of the people listening to Paul laughed him out of there. But a few of them stopped searching because they had found the great message that God had saved them. 
And that was enough. And that everything drove them back to that eternal life that he had given all people as a gift by entering our troubles, by dying our death, taking the permanent accusations against us away, and rising again to say, you will rise again too. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Don't you know, God says to you and me today, that I'm saving your soul? And I'll crash and burn any dream you have in this life, if I need to, to save your soul. Because that, and you'll thank me, because that will be forever. That we'll be together. And I'm speaking all of this from the basis of, if you're that person today that's feeling troubled, you might not be feeling so troubled today. And you don't need to have a fake troubled heart today. It'll come soon enough. Right? But you do need to know that even the blessings of your life are appointed by God that you might see He is your loving Savior. It says here in the story, I'm going to finish reading it to you, and you saw a little bit of it, and then they moved on to something else. It says, verse 51, then, they went down to, he, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. They got the blessings of Jesus. If you could allow me to say this, not pulling a stunt like this again. God blesses us too, doesn't he? It's not all trouble. And they had the blessings of having him as their beautiful, wonderful son of God in their family. And he grew in their favor, in the favor of the community, in favor and stature before God and men. And people would say about Mary, blessed are you that you got to have him as your boy. Is what a wonderful treat that was. Right after Jesus said these words, it says, verse 50, they did not understand what he was saying to them. This is the hard part. We do not fully understand anything without, spiritually speaking, without the help of the Holy Spirit. And we cannot, like I've said twice or three times today, make sense of all our troubles apart from salvation. So there's so much that doesn't get answered. Therefore, when we go searching for Jesus in prayer, we do not always know what we should pray for. And that is a very frightening thing. When you even go to God in prayer, when you're frantic, and you say, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I know you've got these ways that you want to be approached, and i got these issues. I don't even know how to approach you in prayer. I don't even know if you want to listen to me the way I talk to you. But I'm feeling this. Well... You know that God has, has planned for you to have that problem so that, I mean, he's planned for the, the solution for that problem already. He's anticipated it. It's in Romans 8. It's verse 26 and 7, but I want you to listen carefully and I'm, I'm done. Paul the Apostle is writing to people when they're suffering in Romans 8, and he says, The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for. That's a very big admission. 
But the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he, meaning the Father, who searches our hearts, the Holy Spirit's in our heart, he knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Do you know what you're supposed to do with this when you think about Mary talking to Jesus and not really understanding what she was saying? When you think about yourself approaching God in prayer and you're worried you may not pray correctly, what you're supposed to remember from this passage is God says to you, just talk to me. I got it. (laughs) I got my spirit praying right next to you. And and when you don't get it right, I'll listen to my spirit. (laughs) I got it. You can talk to me anytime. I'm just glad you're talking to me. Jesus wasn't upset with his mother. Jesus is not upset with us when we don't pray perfectly. He's glad we're talking to him. And he's got it covered by his Holy Spirit. And that way, you can trust him even more. You trust him because you remember who he is. You trust him because you know his mission. And you trust him because you know even in your prayers, he's not going to be critical of you. He's going to pray for you to himself. I would call that being our Savior. And that's what makes Christmas so beautiful. God gave us a Savior. Remember that. It's a treasure. It's the big treasure. Amen.